There is a great privilege when you're preaching through books of the Bible. One of the, the best things is that you don't have to worry about the themes because sort of God picks them for you. Um, but the challenge is every now and again, you get to a passage and you think, oh, what on earth are we going to say about this passage? This, this is a bit of one of those oh passages this morning. Because most of 1 Thessalonians is about friendship, is about expecting the Lord to return. And then suddenly we get a passage that's all about sex and marriage and not burning with lust. Um, I am just going to put a little bit of a disclaimer at the start of this message, or a bit of a, a warning. I don't think there are any very young children in the room. Um, but if you're watching with particularly young children online, it may be that some of the subject matter isn't that suitable this morning. But just to say that at the start. But if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I will read from verses 1 down to verse 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will be not dependent on anybody. There's about 12 weeks' worth of material in those verses, but let's pray that God will give us his wisdom as we tackle some of these issues. Lord, we just pray um, that you will give us your, your ears, Give us your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that inspired these words. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate them to our hearts today and just help anything that I say to be what you would want to be said this morning, Lord. We just pray, Holy Spirit, move amongst us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder which of these two images best describes your life. They're both full of elastic bands, aren't they? Just imagine those elastic bands represent different things that you do. It might be home life, it might be work life, it might be church. I wonder whether your life is in all little neat compartments. Or whether you feel it's all sort of burged together, and you're sort of splurged together like that ball of elastic bands. Or perhaps you feel like life is a bit more like this. I can see a few nods. This is, I think, how my life feels some of the time. You're doing all these things, you have no idea what the interconnection is. What well, can I suggest the interconnection in life, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians, is that life is lived God's way. All of it. We should have no compartments, none of these little bits where it says, the Lord is not welcome here. But everything is to be brought in front of the presence of God. 
Now, as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians, the theme of imitation, the theme of following after Christ, of visibly doing the things that Jesus does, is a theme that he returns to time and again. If you were here last week, we got that, that beautiful little phrase, pleasant memories. Do you remember this from last week, if you were here? And the sense that when Paul left Thessalonica, the people looked back and said, well, wasn't he a great bloke to have with us? And he left these pleasant memories in his wake. And we're called to remember that in a world that knows so little of the gospel, sometimes the nearest people get to Jesus is how we behave. The things we say, the things we do, the attitudes we hold. So 1 Thessalonians reminds us time and again that all of life is interconnected. And Christian holiness should be present in all areas. Now, as we move through these verses, Paul really talks about two areas. One is about Christian purity around um, sex and lust and those kind of things. And then the other is about work. So two great big topics. We'll talk about the first one in a little bit more detail, but we will also touch on the second one this morning as well. So let's, first of all, let's have a look at purity. Now, I've grown up going to church. I remember being in youth groups as a teenager. I can remember probably in my late teens and early 20s, um, red-faced preachers looking highly embarrassed, trying to talk about passages like this, often using the wrong words and causing real problems for everybody. Because it felt like you were just getting told off. It felt like actually sex was something that was a taboo. It wasn't something we talked about. And yet, in God's word, it is framed so differently. Sex, starting in Genesis, used in the right context, used within God's bounds, is declared very good. Read Song of Songs, a beautiful love affair between a man and a woman. And you get something of God's heart. Don't read it as an allegory. Read it as it was originally written. And yet, so often, I think we find in life that things that are named as very good, because we're broken and fallen, they can get warped, they can get parodied, they can be used in a self-seeking way, and as this passage will show, they can cause enormous pain around us. Now, as we unpack these verses, I'm very conscious for the need to come with deep humility here, for all of us to come with deep humility. There are no experts when it comes to a passage like this. Nobody can put up our hands and say, you know, I've got all this sorted, thanks Paul, don't need to listen anymore. But actually, we're all vulnerable, we're all human, we're all broken. I'm also very conscious that many of us carry past hurts, either things that we have done that we then bitterly regret, or things that have been done to us that then carry the weight of the hurt and the problems. I also realize that as the wider church in the world, we have very little credibility when it comes to talking about sex, when it comes to talking about purity. You look at how often it hits the news headlines that some Christian leader or other has fallen off whatever pedestal they've been put on, They've had multiple affairs, and they come crashing down, and we're left trying to pick up the pieces. Or you might be thinking of the terrible abuse scandals that have rocked the church. I'm also very aware, and this passage doesn't deal with this particular issue, that the wider church is, is really divided at the present time over issues of same-sex relationships. Now, a number of people have come to us as a leadership and sort of said, you know, it's been five and a half years since we've talked about this, I think, in the last time. Let, let's have some space to talk about some of these issues to grapple with God's word and see what the Lord is saying. So we are going to be making some space over the coming months, most likely in sort of smaller group settings, to look into God's word, to do some Bible study together, and to see what the Lord is saying. Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, with an amazing beard to boot, he would talk about how as the Christian, 
What you need to do is you need to have the Bible under one arm, firmly rooted in God's word, but have the newspaper in the other. Seeing what is going on in the world and how we then sort of work out how to interpret the world through the word of God. So what is Paul talking about here? We can't talk about everything this morning, so we're going to stick to this passage like glue and work out the issues that Paul is addressing and then say, well, how can we apply those to our own lives? What Paul is doing is he's calling for Christians in Thessalonica in other Greek cities to look very different to the surrounding Greek culture. The call is not to try and blend into what is going on, but the call is to following Jesus, live differently, and stand out, make a difference, look at life in a different way, and we will see there are some really key things that he will say. Now, as Christians in evangelical traditions, I think sometimes we can be so emphasizing grace and faith by grace and salvation in that way that we forget that the New Testament has some very clear, strong ethical teaching about how we are to live in a way that doesn't belittle other people, in a way that doesn't cause pain to people around us. Now, it's not that ethical living of itself um, makes us acceptable to God. We can never earn our way to God. But it's because we have been saved by faith through grace that we are then called and empowered by the Spirit to live in a different way. And this is what Paul is encouraging them to do. So we get to verse 1. We've got there eventually. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. Just think for a moment. How different is that to legalism? You know, legalism is a list of things that you can and can't do, and you tick off and you say how well I'm doing. Living to please a person, our Heavenly Father, is something that should delight the heart of a human being. You know, our kids, when they were growing up, um, they used to come home from school, and they used to have drawn some picture or made something in art, and they would come and they would show it to me and say, look, it's a picture of you and the cat, and I'd be thinking, well, it looks like early serialism, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. But there is something as a human being where we see a child's attempt to do something that causes us to smile. Because we know they're trying, and we know they're on a journey, we know they're not there yet. I just love that image, that if we're living to please God, God smiles over us. God is pleased, even if we don't get it 100% right, he still smiles because we're facing in his direction, we're desiring holiness. We're not perfect, we're never going to be perfect in this life. But we can live in a way that pleases God. And it says in verse 1, as in fact, you are already living. This church in Thessalonica, they're already doing a lot of this stuff. But he says, keep doing it more and more, because there's a danger, isn't there? If you think you're sorted out, complacency comes in, problems then emerge. So keep going. Keep doing this more and more. And so in verse 3, it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified or holy. Not a nice idea, but God's will. This is God's instruction. So what's he talking about? Well, he says, you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, that word avoid is not like saying you should avoid biscuits. You know, it doesn't really matter if you have a biscuit, but but try and avoid them. They're not that great for you. Or it's not like saying avoid going down that road because you might hit some roadworks. This is avoid. This is cut yourself off. This is have nothing to do with. Now, sexual immorality in this particular context is is sex that is pre-extramarital, or involves multiple partners. That really is what Paul is talking about. Now we get to verse 4, and it gets a little bit trickier. Because the NIV says this, control your own body. Now there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not sure that's what Paul is actually meaning. 
And if you've got a Bible in front of you, if you haven't, you might want to open your Bible or get it up on your phone because there are alternative translations here. Now, the New Testament is, is written in Greek, and Greek, like every language, has some words that are trickier to understand. You know, English does, doesn't it? I, I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm thinking, um, if you say bark, what am I talking about? Anyone? Tree, a dog? Music, bark of a tree. If I say somebody is mean, what am I talking about? What, what do I mean? Well, there's another version of the word meaning. Were they mean, or were they mean as in average? Well, we don't know, because you have to know the concept. So there are three variations on that word. Now, if I say I'm really into rock, what do I mean? I can think of three options there. Don't get them confused. One of them is about music, one of them is about stones, and one of them is about that kind of rock you buy on Blackpool Pier. If you get those confused, you're either going to break your teeth or end up listening to a stone. It, it really doesn't have a lot to go for it. So here, there is a real issue with that word body. Because um, the, the word body here literally means vessel. Now, John Stott and, and a number of other writers, so I hope I'm in good company here, say that actually that word is far more likely to mean wife than it is to mean this physical body. It's far more likely to mean that. And the NIV offers a, a variant on that translation at the bottom. Now, this is not, definitely not then, about learn to control your wife. This is nothing to do with what Paul is saying. But rather, it is a call to live in good relationship. It is a call to the married men in Thessalonica to live in good relationship with your wife. Now, I am no Greek scholar, but from the, the company of people that I've read this week, probably the best shot at what this verse means is learn to live in holiness and honor with your wife. I love that phrase. I think that is so beautiful. Learn to live in holiness and honor with your wife. Because it's affirmative, it's encouraging, it's freeing. It builds up marriage. And most importantly, it honors women in a way that the Greek culture of the day didn't do. And so it's saying something quite different here. And it's about the honoring of the marriage relationship and the honoring of women. So who is Paul writing to? Well, it seems that he's specifically writing to married men in the church in Thessalonica. And he will often do this. Paul will often write to a specific group. He'll talk to women in a few verses, then he'll talk to the men of the church, then he'll talk to those who are slaves, then those who are free. There is nothing unusual about that. But here, he is encouraging the married men in Thessalonica to faithfulness and commitment. Not to burn with passion, it says in verse 5, with lust like the pagans. So what were the pagans up to at this time? Well, a Greek man living at this point in history, he could have a wife, and um, the wife may or, or, or may um, sort of run the household. They would look after any children in the house. That was the kind of role. But it was socially acceptable for them to have a mistress as well. It was also socially acceptable if they had slaves to sleep with the slaves as well. It was also socially acceptable for them to go down to the pagan temple and sleep with temple prostitutes. So a Greek man could have many partners, and this was causing havoc in the society. It was hurting people left, right, and center. It was nothing to do with God's plans. And so Paul says, this is not the way you should be living. Don't live like this, but live in a very, very different way. Don't live in a way that demeans yourself, that demeans women, that demeans um, fellow men, if you're having affairs with different people's wives. And so verse 6, no one should wrong his brother. Every time there is sexual infidelity, and this was including in the Greek sort of situation, it would be hurting people. 
Every time there was coercive sex, it was staring down and destroying. And God takes this very seriously. I don't know if you noticed verse 6 as we were reading it through. It says that if people carry on in that way, they will be punished by God. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody has made a mistake and repented, because obviously we are, we are then forgiven. But if somebody insists on keeping living in this kind of lifestyle, actually God will take it upon himself to punish them. Now, that is not easy to hear, is it? That is tough, but that is what the verse says. Again, in verse 7, there is the call to a holy life. So this then, it appears to be to the men in Thessalonica, the married men of Thessalonica, saying this is how you live. Don't be like the Greek world. Live faithfully, honorably, and in a holy way. So what does this have to say to us today? You know, our world is not the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Many um, years ago, and very thankfully, slavery has gone, legalized slavery anyway. There are no temple prostitutes, but we have our fair share of temptations, our fair share of things that can destroy us and can pull us away from God's ways. So I want us really to reflect on three things this morning from these verses, um, wherever they are on here. Here we go. And they are um, about having a different story to tell. They're about how we're called to be people of faithfulness and how we're called to be people of forgiveness and what we do when things go wrong. These points, these are not just to the married men in Thessalonica. These are universals. But I think these are things that we can really draw out of this passage. So the first thing is about a different story. You see, when our society talks about sex, when it's portrayed in the wider media, I think we've got to a point culturally where if something is um, consensual and non-coercive, Basically, in the wider culture, whatever the heart wants, the heart can have. I, th- I think we're at that point in society. There has been a breakdown um, in all kinds of traditional moralities over many years. But this passage paints a very different picture. Paul says that in Greek culture, this is just hurting people. But instead, we are encouraged to live in a way that pleases God where our deepest desires are not driven by sex, but they're they're sort of driven by that deep desire to live out who God has called us to be. Shall we remind ourselves of some of the names that God has spoken over us today? I've got a few here. You might want to shout some out. We are children of God. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are deeply loved. We are called. We are known by name. Any others that anyone's got that God has said over us? Apple of his eye. We're all looking half asleep this morning. Anything else? Anything else that we feel God has said over us? A royal priesthood. A a holy people. Yeah. Perhaps one more. Anyone else? We'll get there. Going. Loved. Yeah, going. We've, We've got one more. All these names that God has given us. And this is our story. This is who we are. We don't have to say that we are purely driven by desire. We have something different to say. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're loved, we're accepted, but we're called to be different. And we're called for God to search us. The second thing then on there was that call to faithfulness. And that's faithfulness, yes, if if we are in a married relationship, but it's also faithfulness to who God has called us to be and who God has named us. 
When, when we think about when things go wrong in life, you know, sexual sin and, and problems, they, they don't tend to start with somebody randomly one day being okay and the next day having an affair which tears a family apart. It doesn't normally follow that, that somebody one day is, is li- living you know, a, a holy life and the next day they're accessing the most hardcore material online. Normally things start to go wrong bit by bit. And we've used this illustration a number of times, but I, I do think it's a really helpful one. If ever you're out for a walk in the countryside and you come across a spring of water, I don't know if you've ever seen that, where water just bubbles out of the ground and you, you, there's nothing and then, then there's suddenly a river. There's quite a lot of places in the Peak District where that happens, where they either flow out of caves or they just spring out of the ground. Now, we know that the water doesn't just sort of descend from the heavens and then flow out. It's been flowing underground for a while. It's been gathered from different places, but the first point we see it is when it emerges from the surface. You know, sadly, all too often in the human heart, there are problems that are happening underground that nobody sees, that nobody knows about, other than ourselves. And the tragedy is that so often, we don't deal with them until they burst out onto the surface, and then they start to cause all kinds of issues. I remember when I'd first become a minister, talking to a really experienced Pentecostal pastor, he was saying from sort of 30, 40 years of pastoral experience that one of the greatest tragedies that he felt in contemporary Christianity was the first time for many Christians we acknowledge a problem in life is when it's all gone horribly wrong. That we just try and look so respectable, we're so bothered about what other people think of us, that we just keep it all hidden, we keep it underground. We don't put the red flag up, we don't ask anyone for help, and then suddenly things go pear-shaped. Can he encourage us? particularly with these areas that we're talking about today. Let's once and for all put down the Victorian heritage in our churches. Let's not be people who get embarrassed to talk about sex and problems and things like that when things are going wrong. Now, yes, absolutely, we can talk to God. God is always listening to us. He longs for us to come and share our burdens with him, and often that is enough. But sometimes in life, we will need the support of other people. We will need our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to support and encourage us. And if, if today, in whatever way that is you, can I encourage you, don't just allow things to keep going on under the surface that then can cause shipwreck and all kinds of problems in our life. But try and find a Christian friend who you can trust. Be honest, be open, talk, communicate. If you want to find somebody who's totally confidential, um, come to me, come to one of the leaders. We won't ask you any questions, but we can put you in touch with somebody who will work those things through with you. God is faithful. He calls us to be faithful too. And the final thing there, forgiveness and when things go wrong. We've shared communion this morning. We all muck up, don't we? We all mess up. That's why Jesus died. That's why he came. Because as human beings, we fail, we make mistakes, we do things that are wrong. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can be gloriously free gloriously free. There is no condemnation, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, whatever has happened in our lives, it doesn't matter whether it was last week, 30 years ago, but we've not really forgiven ourselves. The moment we say sorry to God, we are forgiven and it is no more. I just wonder if there may be some of us this morning that just need to be reminded of that beautiful truth that actually God forgives 100%, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he's taken our sins from us. He wipes the slate clean, and we are free 
to live his ways. But what happens when we've been wronged? What happens if actually um, that things have gone wrong and it's happened to us? I'm very consciously aware that in a, in a room with, with a number of people in that we've got today and people watching online, there will be those of us who have been really hurt over the past. There will be those of us who have been wronged. Those of us who have, have suffered because other people have, have done things to us or around us that have caused pain. Now, it may be through the work of the Spirit over many years you've come to the point of forgiveness. If so, that, that is great. You don't need to revisit that. But perhaps it's just too raw at the moment. Perhaps you're not even able to start that journey of forgiveness. Well, I think one thing that verse 6 does, as well as alarming us by saying that people will be punished, it just shows us how seriously God takes these kinds of issues. And Scripture tells us time and time again that the Lord is on the side of the brokenhearted. The Lord is with those who weep. He comforts those who mourn. And can encourage us as well, let's be a church where we can be real with each other. Where when we're hurting, we can comfort one another. Where when we're hurting, we can be those who pray for one another, support one another. Let's not be those who just brush things under the carpet, but those who can really offer the support and the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul talks about brotherly and sisterly love, and nowhere is this more necessary than in situations where perhaps we've been bruised. Just before, we will move on very briefly to look at the, the next passage. I'm conscious time is running away with us. Um, but just to say, if any of these issues that we've touched on today, if any of this is impacting you in some way today, there, there will be space at the end of the surface where we, we will um, have prayer available. But can I just encourage you, please do seek support with, with other people. Please do share this if that's appropriate with a close friend, with one of us on leadership, or we can um, find somebody to journey with that through, through with you. Very quickly, and in not a great deal of detail. Just as in um, purity, we can have kind of shadow versions of ourselves, so in work, sometimes, things can go horribly, horribly wrong. And we forget, can forget that actually we're called to live lives that please God, and lives that leave the fragrance of Jesus behind us. Look at verse 11. I quite like this verse. Mind your own business. Depends how you say it, doesn't it? Mind your own business and work with your hands. And then verse 12, win the respect of the outsider. Now what Paul is, is talking about here, there was a problem in Thessalonica, and it was an unusual problem. I don't think it's a problem we would really encounter today. But the church was so convinced that Jesus was about to return that some people had said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to sit around and wait. And, you know, I'll, I'll sit here and I'll, I'll allow the wealthier people in the church to support me. And if, if that doesn't quite work out, then there's always the Roman corn doll that I can get, so I, I will get fed. And they literally were just sitting around. But Paul says, actually, that's not a God-honoring way to live. If, if you're capable of, of doing some kind of work, if there are no health issues or infirmities, then actual work is something that is part of God's good creation. Just as sex is, so work is. Now, if you work in any capacity, it could be paid, voluntary, at home, um, in, in whatever place that is, just think about what Paul says here in relation to what we do. Do we leave the fragrance of Jesus when we've been working? If you're in a workplace tomorrow, will people be thinking, that person, is a, they really leave something of Jesus behind. They may not even be able to name it, but that, that's the reality. If you're a volunteer, does the same thing happen? If you're doing stuff in church, does the same thing happen? In our financial dealings, are we fully transparent? 
Are we minding our own business or are we looking for other people to point the finger at? Verse 9, Paul simply says, love each other. Love each other. All of holiness in work and sex can be held together by that desire to please God and to love each other. So I'm just going to leave you with that question. Are you wanting to please God today? Are you living in a way that that is your deepest desire? Whether it's in work, if you're married, if it's in your married life, if you're single or whatever your situation is, are you living in a way that you just long to please God? I think if we get that right in this passage, then all the rest starts to, to fit into place. Can I encourage us to long to delight our Heavenly Father? Even if it's like those kids' drawings, you know, where we come and we've, we've drawn something, and we're, we're, not, we're not there yet. But the Lord smiles at us. He delights when we live to please him. Can I pray for us? And if the worship team can come up to the front, that would be great. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, there are times when your word is tricky to understand. It's difficult to work out exactly how we apply scriptures to ourselves. But Lord, we we just pray this morning that our primary aim in life, as we think about holiness, will be to live to please you, to live to delight you, to live in a way that just leaves the fragrance of Jesus in whatever we do in life. So, Lord, help us to have great humility as we think about some of the issues we've touched on this morning. Lord, if we have brokenness in us, Lord, help us to to come to you and to seek your love and your care. If there are areas where perhaps we're falling into temptation at the moment, Lord, would you help us not to just let those things ride, but to really seek your face and to once again live to please you. Lord, we look to you. We pray that this life will not overwhelm us, but that we will see your vision and your purposes for how we're called to live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.